I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. All right, Lauren, what's the oldest piece of climbing gear? Or, or like, what's the oldest piece of outdoor equipment that you own? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the oldest thing that I own that I like use regularly, I was just thinking about this out climbing the other day, is probably my Grigri. Because I remember buying this Grigri after having kind of a near miss climbing. And I realized that that was like pff, 11 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I've definitely been using the same belay device now for well over a decade. I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with that as someone who's also probably <laughs> owned the same Grigri for 10 years. So you're okay here. You're safe here. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is I was, I was thinking about this story that we're going to talk about today. And like, think about the sports we like to do, whether you are into biking or climbing or backpacking. And think about all the advancements that have been made in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. It's wild. Like the, the gear is better. It allows us to go faster. It allows us to do harder things. And, and I'd even argue that it, it allows you to have more fun because it's lighter and better and just it just works better, right? And could you imagine like going back to the 1950s, like after you've, you've had modern experience? No, it would be a very different sport today, I think, if we didn't kind of have this constant stream of new gear. And I, for one, am grateful that I don't need to climb on hemp ropes anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And no, and I, I even think about it on the level of technology sometimes, like, right, that that you think about planning a trip and how many more ways there are to figure that out in advance, like what the conditions would be like, what the weather would be like. And then once you're out there, there's all these extra tools that so many people are taking advantage of to feel safer or to check in with family. And I think it kind of acts as a metaphor because today we're going to talk about a really cool bikepacking trip in your backyard. And we're also going to talk about a law from the 1800s dictating so much of what we think about and use on public lands. So who's going to help us tell this story? We're following the story of Emily Markstein. Two years ago, she heard about a proposal for a mine in the Eastern Sierra. She got curious, and she wanted to know how this might impact the quiet spaces she loves, the interconnected hot springs, the desert, and all the abundant cultural resources. Sometimes the only thing to do is to see it firsthand and witness it for yourself. And what better way than from the seat of a bike? I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
one of my friends from college moved to Mammoth and I saw her pictures from the huge snow year and I was like, I want to be a ski bum. So I left a career of environmentalism in Vermont to move out to Mammoth for snow. It's this tiny little town nestled in the eastern Sierras and it has this backdrop of these huge mountains. I was only supposed to do one winter, but classic Mammoth story, five years later, I'm still here. This is Emily Markstein. Like many a ski bum, she moved to Mammoth Lakes, California for the legendary snow. But quickly, she decided to stick around for the community of like-minded adventure seekers. So when she met fellow bike enthusiast Amber Rassler, she knew she'd found a kindred spirit. They spent countless days riding and dreaming of doing a bigger bike tour together. Then, in the summer of 2021, Emily got a text from Amber this issue with core mining popped up and she's like, have you heard about this? And it was really like the beginning of this project called Noha Creek Mine that we started trying to bring awareness to this exploratory drilling that was going to be happening right in our backyard. Emily's adopted hometown lies in the eastern Sierra of California and mining is nothing new here. Mammoth Lakes had its own gold rush in the late 1800s and with an underground gold seam that runs the length of the Sierra Nevada, it's not surprising that people are still looking for it. But when Emily heard about a gold mining project at Hot Creek Geological Site, just 10 miles east of Mammoth, she was surprised that she hadn't heard about it before. Bear with me here. I don't totally know what we use gold for. Like, I would imagine that maybe like uh, lithium or cobalt, that it's that it's going into a lot of different electronics or into uh, solar panels or renewables. Um, but, I, but I don't know, like, what where, what will this gold mine, what, what, what do we get out of it? Yeah, so that's totally what I'd thought, too. I figured that all these gold mines that were popping up had something to do with this big demand for electric vehicles and green energy. But really, it's not entirely. I mean, more than half of the gold that's mined each year, and presumably from these projects too, will just go to jewelry. I mean, wedding rings being the big one, which is kind of crazy to think crazy. about. Crazy. I need to, st- on a side note, I need to stop losing my wedding ring. <laughs> uh, mine is stuck on my finger, so I'm not losing it You're anytime good to go. soon. But yeah. But, okay. okay, so on top of wedding rings, then you've got another 40% that pretty much just goes to currency, right? It, it's made into gold bars or coins, or it's sent to central banks all over the world. So um, it's like the Fort Knox stuff, right? Like the, yeah, the actual 100%. like, boom, you know, where we think about that gold just sitting behind vaults. Yes. So that total makes up almost all of it. And then you've got this 8% that's left. And that 8% goes to technology. Um, and then yes, you know, some of that small percentage is going into almost all of our electronics. Like, right, gold is in most of our electronics, but it's in very small amounts. And as a whole makes up a much smaller proportion of the demand for gold around the world. So what you're saying is like, this mine isn't necessarily like a part of, of boosting a, a new green economy or a transition away from fossil fuels. It's just for wedding rings and gold bars. Yeah, I mean, we use gold for all sorts of things, but yes, it's not lithium, right? There are also, there is a big push for lithium mining across California. And I feel like the discussion of something like that is totally different because it's something that we know we need a lot of if we want to switch to cleaner energy. Um, but for gold, we really don't have that. I would not have thought that there was that much demand 
for that that kind of thing. Yeah, I know. I totally had the same reaction. And so did Emily. Soon, the Hot Creek Gold Mining Project was all Emily could think about. The Inyo National Forest had just granted a Canadian company called Core Mining permission to conduct exploratory drilling, which meant that construction could begin on more than a dozen drill pads and dirt roads to access them. Once the drilling started, lights could be on 24 hours a day. Exploratory drilling might not sound like it's going to have a very big impact, but it will. There's going to be lights at night. The trucks are going to be kicking up a ton of dirt. Um, it's going to be really loud and noisy. Uh, you'll actually be able to see the exploratory drilling from the top of Mammoth Mountain while you're skiing. And if they find gold, which they will, because there's a gold seam that runs from Bodie Hills to Mammoth to Conglomerate Mesa, there's a potential for an open pit mine to happen. The more Emily dove into researching the proposal, the more she learned about the potential impacts especially as the project progresses. Core Mining's proposal includes an open pit mine that extracts gold through a process known as cyanide heap leaching. Essentially, a cyanide solution gets sprayed over mounds of crushed ore to separate the gold flakes out. From a mining perspective, it's a time-tested and efficient process that makes mining lower-grade ore more profitable. The problem is that cyanide is toxic, and a spill would cause an environmental and public health disaster. It's happened before, which is why Montana banned cyanide heap leaching in 1998. And even without a spill, the presence of the mine alone would have a huge impact on the landscape. The project proposal doesn't give any information about how much water's needed, but it's likely to be a lot. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, for this type of mining, water is primarily used for two things— the cyanide solution, and for dust suppression. Every mine is different, but they estimate that in warm months, up to 600 gallons of water is needed per minute. If we have an open pit mine, it's just going to be this huge scar on the earth impacting the water, impacting the ecosystems, and really also impacting our local communities. So we decided that we were going to create a grassroots organization to stop this mining company. Emily and Amber, along with a few other friends, started a group called No Hot Creek Mine. They began organizing protests, but they knew they needed to find a creative way to get more people involved. Because Mammoth Lakes is such an adventure sports community, we were like, we really need to get the adventure sports community involved. And how can we do that? Emily and Amber started learning about other industrial gold mining projects that were popping up all over the eastern Sierra, not just in Hot Creek, but also in the Bodie Hills and Conglomerate Mesa. All three project sites could result in open pit mines with cyanide heap leaching, but the proposed sites were spread out by over 200 miles. They wanted to find a way to connect the dots and spread the word. Amber and I wanted to combine our love for cycling and bike touring with activism and also bringing that cycling community in. When you're bike touring, you're moving at a really slow pace, so you really become intimate with the landscape around you. With a plan to bike from the Bodie Hills through Hot Creek and down to Conglomerate Mesa, it seemed obvious to me that they would use Highway 395, which runs north to south along the eastern Sierra. But Emily and the crew chose to avoid it. For all of us that live here, we drive that road all the time, and we just really wanted to get a more intimate and, and clearer understanding of the land that was going to be impacted by mining. 
Instead, they plotted a six-day, 200-mile route along dirt roads. Starting in Bodie, about 60 miles north of Mammoth Lakes, they would wind their way south to Conglomerate Mesa, 150 miles south. Friends would join along the way, some for the whole trip, others popping in for smaller sections. And on top of the biking, they would plan events along the way to talk to community members about the mining projects and ways they could band together to stop them. After months of planning, the winter came to a close. On April 17th, they packed their bikes in the back of a friend's truck and headed to Bodie. We had picked a point to camp, but we got halfway down the road and then there's we couldn't drive any further because of snow. So we camped right outside Bodie Ghost Town. And the first night was so incredibly windy, I got maybe an hour or two of sleep. So it started off the trip on a great note. And it was funny because all of us woke up in the morning and we were like, did you guys hear the footsteps? We'd all heard footsteps at night walking around our camp, even though we were all in separate tents. And we were like, oh, maybe it was a ghost from Bodie Ghost Town. <laughs> so the first night was definitely um, an experience. Bodie is a gold mining ghost town. In the late 1800s, thousands of miners flocked there, but their success was short-lived. By the 1940s, the town was deserted, and in 1962, the ghost town was made a state historic park. The hills around the park, which stretch into Nevada and encompass over 120,000 acres, are home to sage grouse and pronghorn. And just like the other sites they'd bike to, the proposed mining projects in the Bodie Hills are all on public land. Companies are allowed to come into Forest Service land for resource extraction, especially if they have mining claims. Um, and I think that misconception about the Forest Service being for recreation and for public use leads to a lot of like shock factor around like, why are these mining companies coming in? So we're going to take a little detour from the bike tour here. The way policymakers think of mining in this country, at least on public lands, generally falls into three categories. Oil and gas, coal, and hard rock minerals. And hard rock mining, of which gold is a part, along with minerals like silver and lithium, has largely been dictated by the same law for the last 150 years. It's like a very American thing in a way, right? Like the 1872 mining law, it's like, young man, go west. And when you find minerals, you can take those things out of the ground and they're yours. And like, that's that. This is Lewis Geltman. He's the policy director for Outdoor Alliance. And he's going to help us understand what this 150-year-old law has to do with Emily mining in the Eastern Sierra. It's hard for me to think of another example of a law that's on the books and impacts our lives the way the 1872 mining law does that's 150 years old. But to the extent that that ever had any utility, we've certainly long outlived it. So before the 1872 mining law, mining in the American West was pretty informal. California was a brand new state, and technically, open mining on public land was illegal. Legislators on the East Coast thought of miners as squatters, but representatives in the West began convincing them that the miners were performing valuable public services. And in 1872, they solidified their vision in law. Federally managed land that wasn't set aside for specific uses, like national parks or wilderness areas, 
became open to mining claims. In practice, what that meant was that anyone could walk onto public lands, find gold, and stake their claim. The mining processes have changed drastically since the law was written. It's no longer the realm of a single person with a pickaxe. It's large, often international companies with huge operations. And as the world of mining has evolved, so too have our ideas about public lands. That language comes directly from the 1872 mining law that mining is the highest and best use of public lands. It's, it's strange, right? It's like, 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 why is that the highest and best use of public lands? Why is it not conservation or wildlife habitat or clean water or the opportunity to experience these places? It's really hard to imagine that, that if you ask people what is the highest and best use of public lands, that very many people would come up with mining. And yet, because the 1872 mining law determined that mining was the best and highest use of public lands, it leaves land managers today with very little recourse to limit mining. There's limited ability for the land management agencies to say no to bad projects. They can sort of condition the permits in a way that that has some effect on the conditions under which these mines operate, but it's nowhere near what you need for an appropriate regime that takes account of the other values of public lands. Today's mining laws don't have many built-in environmental protections, which means that when a company comes into a place like the Bodie Hills, Hot Creek, or Conglomerate Mesa, land managers don't have many options to help them evaluate the project for its potential environmental impact. There's no way, given the 1872 mining law and how we govern mining in this this country that you can say with any confidence that this is something that's truly in the public interest. Nobody's even tried to say if it's in the public interest, right? It's like, that's just not even a, a thing in this conversation. It's just, I, I found some stuff up here and now I have a right to take it out of the ground and I'm going to do it. When Lewis talks about land managers, what he means is the agency that controls that chunk of public land. In the Eastern Sierra, We're talking about the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. And because the Bodie Hills and Hot Creek projects are on Forest Service land, and the Conglomerate Mesa project is on BLM land, things work a little differently. For Bodie and Hot Creek, the Forest Service has granted the mining companies what's known as a categorical exclusion. It's part of their national policy that small mining projects, or specifically ones that take less than a year to complete, can be excluded from environmental assessment. In Conglomerate Mesa, the project is bigger, and the BLM is requiring a more robust environmental impact statement. The BLM could then require mitigations to the project, but because of the 1872 mining law, they're not allowed to say no to the project entirely. If the company can meet those mitigations, they're allowed to proceed. In all three instances, the local land managers are finding their hands tied by federal legislation written long ago. Which brings us back to Emily, Amber, and the Bodie Hills. As they biked through the quiet landscape, it was hard for them to imagine big trucks whizzing by, with lights illuminating an otherwise dark and starry sky. Where we had camped, it's just these rolling hills of sagebrush with dirt roads dotted here and there. We got there right at sunset, woke up at sunrise, and the sun just had turned everything this beautiful golden color. And it was just really amazing to start the bike ride off in this remote space, no people, just the wind and these beautiful golden hills of sagebrush. 
from the get-go, things were pretty difficult. We cycled down to Mono Lake and we got to the road that goes around the backside of Mono Lake that we were supposed to cycle. And it was just pure sand. And we were like, oh no, what are we going to do? One of the biggest things that was hindering us was our equipment. You know, we all only had road bikes, so we were all just using road bikes in very difficult terrain. They found another route, but it added 20 miles to their already big day. And on top of that, the weather wasn't exactly cooperating. There's a blizzard coming in. Like, I can see the snow falling. It's so cold. The whole team was struggling. But for Emily, another challenge contributed to her growing concern about how the rest of the tour would go. I had also had surgery on my wrist about three months prior, and I didn't think it would be a problem. But already in my mind, I was falling behind everybody a bit. I was really struggling holding on to my handlebars, and I was pretty nervous for the rest of the bike ride. Day one was rough, and the finish line of the bike tour seemed impossibly far away. Their luck turned just a little, though, and they found a beautiful campsite near Mono Lake. Wild horses came to visit, and mountains towered above them, still capped in snow. The quiet and calm restored their stoke. We all woke up, unzipped the tents, and there's about two to three inches of snow. It didn't take long for Emily and the team to realize that they wouldn't be able to get to Hot Creek in time for the event they'd planned. I ended up calling my friend and he picked us up. And we were like, is this cheating? With a little help from their friends, Emily and the crew met community members at Hot Creek. It was hard to believe that the bubbling geothermal creek, a favorite spot of fly fishermen, hikers, and families exploring the hot springs, could soon be disrupted by trucks, lights, and digging. As part of the headwaters of the Owens River, water from Hot Creek flows through Long Valley and south through Bishop, before being diverted into an aqueduct to provide drinking water for Los Angeles, hundreds of miles away. A cyanide spill here would be disastrous for both residents of the Eastern Sierra and LA. After the event, the tired cyclists headed back to Mammoth for hot showers and warm beds. After some early disruptions, they would get a fresh start in the morning, where their ride would take them 40 miles south and a few thousand feet lower in elevation to warmer temps and sunnier skies. We had two events lined up that day. The first was a community bike ride down to Bishop to go to Earth Day. So I actually took that morning off because my wrist was really bothering me and I really wanted to finish the rest of the bike tour. So threw my bags and my bike in the back of my car and met them at Earth Day. At Bishop's Earth Day event, Emily and Amber spoke to the community about Hot Creek and the neighboring mining projects. It felt good to be on the move, advocating, and getting the tour done, even if they had to adapt their plans. With the mining projects approved after short public comment periods, Emily wasn't sure what could be done to stop them. But she knew that the more people that were aware of what was going on, the better chance they had at finding a solution. We definitely got a lot of funny looks, you know, with our fully packed bicycles. We probably ate like two hand pies each. We were so hungry. <laughs> um, and then that, that day was pretty awesome. We, we just cycled to the edge of town um, at the end of the day and camped and, and much better spirits. It was warm out, the sun was out, no snow. So yeah, it was a good day. Day four was Bishop to just south of Big Pine 
at Tinamaha Reservoir. And that day was also really easy. We didn't have a ton of miles to cover. I think we had to go 30 to 40 miles that day. And it was beautiful. There was no wind. Um, we got some barbecue down in Big Pine. We took a nap next to some ponds. We went swimming. That night we had a campfire and sort of was able to look at all the trials and tribulations behind us and be like, oh, we got this. Everything will be fine. But it wasn't. That day was kind of like the peak of the trip in terms of like good things happening. And then it went downhill after that. <laughs> after the break, the team cycles on. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Emily, Amber, and a few friends awoke early on day five near Tinamaha Reservoir. Their plan was to get to Lone Pine for an event at the Lone Pine Paiute Shoshone Cultural Center. Another 40-mile day was ahead of them. So we wake up that morning, and the morning was nice, like it was beautiful out. But once we started cycling, we were immediately met with sand. Like we had to, we kept hopping on and off the bikes, trying to like walk the bikes through the sand, managing to twist and turn our way through the sand on the bikes. Um, At one point, I think Ethan and I crashed into each other, and I... I like scraped my leg up on on my bicycle and fell off and yeah it wasn't bad like we were laughing about it but it was just kind of like oh god what else can go wrong in their quest to connect with the landscape they'd chosen the route less traveled but that also meant variable conditions and then we met up with the canal and the canal carries the water from the Owens all the way to LA. So we cycled along the canal, but the headwinds were horrible. Like we were just getting blasted with wind, moving so slow, just trying to cycle into the wind. And the road was really bumpy. So my wrist started hurting again. And I think everybody was just like, oh God, here we go again. I just put my head down and I was I was miserable, you know, like I was in a ton of pain. I couldn't hold on to my bike handles. The wind was horrible. And I really got stuck in that loop of like, just like self-loathing and pain. And But I think every single day, there's these moments of just absolute sheer beauty in the landscape and the colors and the light and everything that just made me so appreciative that we could have the opportunity to cycle this and to just want to fiercely protect this space so much more. Struggling through harsh conditions, yet committed to finishing the ride, Emily and the crew took a much-needed pit stop in the small town of Independence. 
and there's this ice cream shop and we all just eat a ton of ice cream and we're like trying to decide what to do and we're like we're moving way too slow on these dirt roads we'll just take the highway having relented the team enjoyed 15 miles of mellow pavement when they rolled into the cultural center in lone pine they were welcomed by the indigenous community leaders who had been fiercely fighting mining projects in the area for decades the big one on their radar now is at conglomerate mesa the final stop on the bike tour Manahu, Inaniane Kathy Jefferson Bancroft, I'm Kathy, and I'm the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Lone Pine Paiute Shoshone Tribe. I just try to take care of everything I can in Paiute which is where we live. Manahu, uh, this is Jeremiah Joseph, and I am just the product of the valley here. When they were first forming No Hot Creek Mine, Emily and Amber looked to Kathy and Jeremiah for inspiration and support. Kathy is an Eastern Sierra legend who's played a part in fighting every threat that has come to her homeland. She's seen mining companies come and go from conglomerate Mesa over the years, and she compares fighting them off to a game of whack-a-mole. Jeremiah, her nephew, spent the past two years working as a cultural resource officer at conglomerate Mesa. They know the area, which is located 20 miles southeast of Lone Pine, intimately. The Mesa is nestled in the middle of three different wilderness areas, but it doesn't have any permanent protections itself. And while the current fight against the mining company K2 Gold only started up again in 2019, they know that this story is much, much older. That story begins when outsiders first came to this valley. So the first people that came into this valley wrote in their journals that this is a place that provides everything. It's beautiful. These people have it made. We should just leave them alone. Of course, that didn't happen. And then they discovered gold and silver. So that brought in uh, miners and who brought in cattle ranchers, who brought in uh, people to sell clothes and all that kind of stuff. So that's where it all started was way back in the 1860s. And then it's just expanded from there. This valley's always been based on extraction since outsiders first came here. But the difference now is it's more than just extraction. It's complete destruction. And then when that change of, uh, of ideas came into the valley, you know, we're looking at Mother Earth as an inventory of goods to profit off of. Conglomerate Mesa's remote location means it's often described as the middle of nowhere. But Kathy and Jeremiah work to educate their local community about why it's such an important place to protect. You're on top of the world when you're on the Mesa. If you frame it as if it is just a barren desert and nothing's out there, people in their little pockets of like wherever they're at, it's fine because it's not in their backyard. But it definitely was a place that is of, of ceremony. And, and it's easy to understand that once you're there and you actually feel it and, and you give it time to actually just be with the land and, and to be with yourself. It's something that you really can't, des- I can't fully describe in the English language because I don't know if like, I'm, I even have the capacity to, like mm-hmm. really what I'm trying to describe. The area is a refuge for Joshua trees, and the abundance of pinyon pines makes it an important gathering space for indigenous communities. The mesa is remote and wild. There are few roads, and a gold mine there would alter the landscape forever. For Emily and Amber, having Kathy and Jeremiah's support made the last days of their trip extra special. Kathy drove behind us the whole way. She would like drive ahead and park until we got there and she'd give us water and fresh fruit and she would cheer us on. And then we'd, we'd bike on and she'd pass us again and go park at the next spot. Jeremiah hopped on a bike, 
and together, the crew headed south from Lone Pine to the Mesa. Something that I felt honored to be able to be a part of, you know, just already having a special place in my heart up there on that mountain, like getting out there and being with the land, you know, is, is a sense of healing for me. Jeremiah brought Emily and the crew a boost of energy as he shared his experiences connecting with and fighting for conglomerate Mesa. He showed them special sights along the way, and as they got closer to the end of the tour, Emily began to reflect on the week. So we biked in towards Death Valley, and Conglomerate Mesa is a mesa before you get into the park, and you turn off onto this dirt road, and I was like, okay, you got this, Emily, like it's your final stretch of dirt road. And we're moving through this really cool landscape, and it, it's, it's really rocky, and it's brown, and then you come over this crest of the hill, and you see the Joshua trees. There's nobody out there, and it just carries this weight of being this really special place. Amber and I at one point were like hugging each other and crying and we're like, we did it, we did it. And it was really, it was bittersweet in a way because it was really difficult, but we just wanted to keep biking. You know, it was like, despite all of these really difficult things that happened, it was like, we want to keep biking and we want to keep working to protect these spaces that we had engaged with for the past five days. Emily was so grateful to have had a partner like Amber to tackle such a big and meaningful trip. I think we balance each other out really well. I'm sort of like a little more chaotic and like very much a plan it at the last second and wing it. And Amber is much more organized than I am. And I think we work really well together. It was time to go home, but the work was far from over. So after this bike tour, we kept moving towards raising awareness in the community. There's a lot of people in the Eastern Sierra and Mammoth who don't know about the project still. Led by the Sierra Club, local organizations worked together to sue the Forest Service's use of the categorical exclusion at Hot Creek. But they lost. The case is heading to the appeals court on August 25th, and Core Mining has promised to wait until September 1st before they start construction but they don't have to wait for an appeals decision. In her new position as No Hot Creek Blind campaign manager for Friends of the Inyo, Emily's looking into creative solutions to protect her backyard, like banning cyanide heap leaching altogether. It's a lofty goal, but one that just might work. Up north in Bodie, there are three mining sites where drilling could start any time now. And south at Conglomerate Mesa, the fight is ramping back up again. The mining company will be submitting its environmental impact statement soon, and a public comment period will open after that. The proposal might even go all the way to the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, because of how controversial it is. Meanwhile, the tribe is fighting for permanent protection for the Mesa that would shut down all future projects. With the 1872 mining law still in place, Stopping any of these projects seems unlikely without significant public pressure on the mining companies themselves. The fight will continue. Mining coming into Eastern Sierra is a really specific issue to us, but there's a lot of work on like a national level and a state level on mining reform and fighting extractive industries. So we're really part of this big picture change that's happening, which is really cool. Here's Lewis Geltman again. 
right now, it seems like when there is a really bad mining proposal, what's available to to local communities, to tribes, to outdoor recreationists, to everybody else who cares about the values of these public lands is basically to throw sand into the gears of the permitting process every single step of the way, just make it as absolutely painful as possible in the hopes that these mining companies will give up. This is basically what Emily and the local tribes and organizations are doing in the Eastern Sierra. But they all know that the conversation around mining law is bigger than that. And a long-term solution requires national policy change. To me, what's interesting about the moment we're in right now is there is this realization that in order to facilitate a transition to renewable energy, we're going to have to take a lot more stuff out of the ground. And we've got to figure out how we can do that in a way that's not catastrophically environmentally destructive, recognizing that some places are 100% the wrong place for a mine, but some places might be okay. And like, we have to say yes to some of that. But what does a responsible regulatory regime look like? For Lewis, this means that we need new laws that will help land managers evaluate the true impact of each mining project. And so we have to make some decisions together that, that these are our values around conservation around our public lands and waters and put those values into practice through law and policy and like we do have to make hard decisions but we want to set up structures that enable us to make those hard decisions with the best information that's not what we are right now with regard to mining through his work at outdoor alliance lewis has been working on the clean energy minerals reform act which would significantly update the 150-year-old way of dealing with mining claims on public lands. Clean Energy Minerals Reform Act is awesome, and I hope that that is the beginning of a really serious conversation around mining reform. It sets up a leasing regime for, for hard rock minerals on public lands. It would bar mining in really sensitive areas establish a royalty regime to make sure that taxpayers are getting an appropriate return for these activities and put a portion of that money to use cleaning up legacy mining. And it would give land managers the ability to say no to bad projects. Lewis's work on reforming mining laws wouldn't just impact the Eastern Sierra. It would impact hard rock mining on public lands all over the country, from the Boundary Waters in Minnesota to Oak Flat in Arizona to the South Fork Salmon River in Idaho. There's a lot of debate right now about what policy reform should look like. Some advocates are worried that a royalty system would incentivize even more mining on public land. The bill is currently only backed by Democrats, so even Lewis knows that the bill would change a lot before it has a chance of passing. But one thing many policy experts agree on is that bigger change is needed because mining's impacts are far, wide, and growing. You know, if you're someone who gets out and gets rad on public lands and waters and you haven't been affected by mining yet, you're pretty lucky. It's coming for places you care about and people you should care about. Thank you, Emily, Lewis, Kathy, and Jeremiah for sharing your stories. If you want to learn more about the Clean Energy Minerals Reform Act and follow its progress, check out Outdoor Alliance. And if you want to stay up to date on Hawk Creek, Bodie Hills, and Conglomerate Mesa, follow Friends of the Inyo. 
We put links to both in the show notes. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. So if you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from David Swenson, The Brow, David Katz, Curio, John Barry, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or track club. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Lauren Delaney Miller with additional production help from Ashley Langholz and Becca Cahal. Artwork by Walker Call. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.